Well, we're in 1 John. If you would, turn to 1 John chapter 2. Thank you, Zane. 1 John chapter 2, verse 28. And as you do, let me go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we come to you this morning, and indeed you are our great God. You are the one that sits above all. You are the one who has placed the stars, formed the mountains, Lord, you're the one who controls all of creation, and you know the time and place for a new heavens and a new earth. And you, the sovereign one who sits above, has sent your son so that we might know you. And as John is going to remind us in this very powerful text here, we also have the opportunity to be called your children. Indeed, you are great, marvelous. And so, Father, we come to you. We ask that you would open our eyes to your word. Thank you for these precious texts penned nearly 2,000 years ago, but moved by the Spirit so that these words can pierce the heart and are sufficient to help us in our walk with you. In Jesus' name, amen. So 1 John chapter 2, verse 28, as you're turning there, if, if you're like me, it's, I've had people say often, oh, you look just like your dad. <laughs> and it's interesting, as you look at traits that you have, many are attributed to your father. In fact, uh, let me give you seven traits that you have, and you can thank your papa for this. One is your height. Two is your eye color. Your dimples. That surprised me. There's one for you. Your fingerprints. In fact, your fingerprints, if anyone, look very similar to your daddy. Your lips. Full lips are a dominant trait, which the baby can be born with if his father or her father has them. The teeth structure, and here's the last one, sneezing. They said they call it the achoo uh, syndrome. That is, if a baby or a father who sneezes when he goes out into the sun, the child will have the same effect. So there you are. There's a few traits that you have inherited from your father, not your mother. Your sweetness is from your mother. No, we'll, we'll leave it at that, right? In chapter 2, verse 28, John is going to look at some traits that we should have if we claim to be a child of the Heavenly Father. These are things that we should see. And in so doing, he's going to look at some glorious truths of what God has done in the past, what he's currently doing in the future in the life of believers, and what awaits God's children in the future. Let's look at what he writes, verse 28. And now, John says, little children... That phrase is used several times. It, it often tells us we're entering into a new section. Some commentators place verse 28 with verse 27. I see it as a whole new section. And it says, little children remain, abide in him, so that when he appears, that is Christ, we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame when he comes back. If you know that he is righteous, and you do, then you also know that everyone who practices righteousness has been fathered by him. And then the text that uh, Mary Lee shared with us earlier, Mary Lee kind of, and was read uh, by Matt in the scripture times. See what sort of love the Father has given to us, 
that we should be called God's children. I'm reading out of the Net Bible, and I love how they render this next phrase. And indeed we are. <laughs> For this reason, the world does not know us, because it didn't know him. And dear friends, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet been revealed. We know that whenever it's revealed, we will be like him, because we will see him as just as he is. And everyone who has this hope focused on him purifies himself just as Jesus is pure. He starts this new section with a command, and that is to remain or to abide. We looked at that term last week. It was interesting. In the previous section, John talks about those who claimed they were of us, but they, those opponents, but they really never belonged to us because they didn't stay. They didn't abide. They weren't abiding with the Lord. And he says, the good news is you abide in Christ. So it was, a, it was used in the sense of assurance earlier in this in, First John. Here we see, no, 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 it's not assurance. Here it's an exhortation. It's a command. We are to abide. Why? He's already talked about this. The last hour is here. We saw that back in verse 18. And now he states here in this section, these two verses, that this time is approaching. His appearance, his coming. Uh, it's, the phrase is used of a ruler uh, who comes with all the glory and the splendor. He says, Christ is going to return. And so, you need to abide. If you claim you have been anointed by the Spirit, if you claim that you're, you're a child of His, if you claim these things, you're having fellowship with Him, then you need to abide. There's two reasons there in verse 28. First, because those who do abide will have assurance. They'll have a confidence when the Lord returns. We're in the last hour. He's coming at any minute. You need to be ready And for those who abide. I think of Colossians 3. When Christ, who is your life, appears, you will appear with him in glory. Or 1 Peter 5. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive an unfading crown of glory. And so he says to this group who, who are, he says, abide because there's confidence. If you don't abide, he then tells us what that happens, and that's you shrink away. It's those who, who don't belong, they're, they're put to shame. They're disgraced openly. Why? Because when Christ returns, he's not going to be a little baby wrapped in swaddling cloths lying in a manger. This will be the king of kings who comes to judge, who, who, who comes, and, and there will be rejection for those who do not abide in Christ. Notice verse 29. Look what he says here. Observe, you would expect, I think I would have expected John to write, everyone who's been born of God does what is right. But he doesn't say that, does he? Notice what he states. He says, doing what is right is the sign of spiritual birth. In other words, doing what's right gives assurance that spiritual birth has occurred. What kind of doing what is right? Well, it's living the kind of life, the quality that was lived by the Lord Jesus Christ. And in so doing, it states there in the latter part of verse 29, we will be fathered by him. John Stott makes this statement, a person's righteousness is thus evidence of his new birth not the cause or condition. 
And so he says, if you've been fathered, a phrase he's going to use 18 times in 1 John, by the way. He'll use it three in this section this morning. He says, if you've been fathered by him, this is how it should be. Okay, I see some young people. Can you imagine, as a young person, you don't go to class, you don't do the homework, you don't take notes in hopes of being a student, do you? You're a student, so you take notes. You go to class, or your parents will clobber you. But otherwise, you still do this. This is expected because you're a student. And John is saying, if you have been fathered by him, then this should naturally flow. Now, he's going to expound on this here in this text. In fact, 1 John 3 is probably one of the most difficult passages in the New Testament. So I hope you brought a seatbelt, and we're going to buckle up and get through this text. It's powerful. But there's a lot here that's going on. You're, I know if you're like me, you're saying, man, this born of God, the father, the children, John loves his metaphors, doesn't he? He's used light and darkness, he's used fellowship, and now he moves to this one, but it's most fitting. I think there's this idea, John's anticipating the reader. They're fearful that they may not really be there in the camp, that perhaps if, I, if I'm toying with sin, then I could lose it. This adoption, and the flip side in which we're going to face, is some who believe they've been adopted in the family, now I can live as I want. So he's got to navigate these waters as he goes through here, and he's reminding them of what the loving Father has done for them. It's interesting, he uses the term, notice we see this in verse 1 of chapter 3 of children. He does not refer to them as sons. Son of God is reserved for Christ in first. John. Why? Because the children has this affectionate term and and son is more of the legal sense. And so he's saying, you've been brought in. You've got the traits of your father. An expectation. And that's reiterated in the grammatical construction here that you've been born out of God. It, it, It indicates the origins and the nature which conforms us into his image. In other words, God is residing in us, and it's a guarantee that we are his. Now, as we go into this, remember that uh, not all people are children of God. I've often heard that. I'm sure you have as well. There's not a universalism fatherhood. Yes, in one sense, the humanity, he is the, the creator of all But to be a child of God, he's talking about someone who's had a relationship with Christ, who's bent their knee and understands that they need a savior. I love verse one of chapter three. I think it's one of the most glorious passages of the entire New Testament. He goes, see what sort of love the Father has given to us, that we, we should be called God's children. And then he just can't help himself. He breaks out in this, and indeed we are. This is just awesome. And it, as I've reflected on that phrase this entire week, this in truth that we are the children of God, what does it mean that the Heavenly Father declares we are His? Let me give you a few, if you're taking notes and following along. First, it speaks of an incredible gift, doesn't it? What manner of love? John, as he says this, and indeed we are, we Ultimately, I don't think we can understand it. I don't think we get our hands around it. We can't explain it, and we certainly didn't deserve it. 
Charles Spurgeon wrote, Oh, you are not dealing with trifles when you are dealing with the love of God. It's not a spare corner of the heart of God that he gives to you, but his great, vast heart of God that belongs as much to every Christian as if there was not another being in the world to love. Even as, think about this, and he's right, even as the father loves his son, so does he love each one of his children. John's pen in this, he spent a lot of time when, when Jesus was on earth. He's had a lot of time to reflect. He's watched some of his colleagues be literally executed for the faith. He's seen the church suffer. There's times to, he could have just darted out the door. He goes, no, 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 no. Don't miss the love of God. I love that he refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved in the fourth gospel. And so when we look at the Father, we have incredible gift because the Father declares we are his. But it isn't in there. There's the permanence of the relationship. It's fixed. It remains. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Paul writes in Romans 8. You may not feel at times you're God's children. I'm talking to those who've placed their faith in Christ. There may be times when you don't exhibit exactly how a child of God should act. But the Lord cannot unadopt us. We are his. <laughs> wow. The Father declares we are his. Here's another. As you look at the, the whole phrase, child of God, that John elaborates here in verse 1 of chapter 3, it's the provision and care. 1 Peter 5, he cares for you. He, he's the good shepherd who walks through the valleys. He comforts, he protects, he provides, and he encourages. To paraphrase the missionary Hudson Taylor, there are times when we are too weak to read our Bible, pray, or even sing a song. That is when, as a child, you simply rest still in God's arms. This past week, talking to an individual in our church who is greatly struggling, I said, I'm praying for you, and she or he said, thank you. I said, I, it's, it's dark right now, but I'm resting in God's arms. That's what John's saying about. That we can do this because the Father declares we are his. I love the words of the old hymn, day by day and with each passing moment, strength I find to meet my trials there, trusting in my Father's wise bestowment. I have no cause for worry or for fear. He whose heart is kind beyond all measure gives unto us each day what he deems best. Lovingly, it's part of pain and pleasure, mingling toil with peace and rest. <laughs> That's your heavenly Father. We are his, he says. And furthermore, it gives us a motive and purpose for life. This is what we're talking about here. A Christian is not trying to live a good life. That is a person with certain beliefs and ceremonies. While Christians do all that, that's true. The underlying issue is that we are children of God, right? We are a new creation. Holiness is not something we are doing in order to become something, but it is something we are to do because of what we already are. 
Gary Burge, in his commentary, states it well. Holiness becomes an imperative fueled not by fear of jeopardy, but by a heartfelt response to the security that God's love gives us. And so, because we're a child of God, the Father declares we are his, we have purpose for life. We don't wonder. Another aspect of being a child of God is we are freed from the wrath of God. We're going to see that a little bit here on those who don't belong. They don't have the fellowship. They're, they're the ones who are going to cower when Christ returns. There is a distinction here in the Trinity. And last week I quoted from a hymn, Under His Wings, an old hymn. And <clears throat> one of you astute scholars wrote to me and said, you know, it's a little vague and actually distinguish, doesn't distinguish between the Son and the Father. So as I look through that, I was like, yeah, you know, you're right. So let me clarify here. Christ is the one who did the work on the cross, but it's God the Father that allows us to be called his child, to be brought in. There are no future bills to pay. Christ came, he's accomplished. Our debt's paid in full if we accept Christ as our Savior. There's no other installments you need to make. And the good news is, it's not by your merit or mine, or we would be toast. The Father declares we are his. There's another aspect that comes here as well, and that is the bondage of sin has been removed because the Father declares we are his. Sin no longer has dominion. We have success for life. We are more than conquerors because he has loved us, Romans 8. We're guaranteed of a glorification. That's what he says here in verse 2 of chapter 3, right? We will, we've not yet been revealed, but there's a time coming when we, we will be like him. <clears throat> we share in his glory, 2 Corinthians 3. And we all with unveiled faces beholding the glory of God are being transformed into the same image, one degree of glory to another. All this because the Father declared we are his. The implications of all of this being that we are the sons or <clears throat> daughters, the children of God, are threefold. One is our lives should overflow with incredible gratitude for our status as a child of God. It's what drives our ethics. It's, the ad it's one of gratitude that I do what I do. Secondly, this knowledge of our status as a child of God strengthens our faith, providing confidence and joy. Martin Lloyd Jones, the English minister, as you might expect, makes this statement. It's just so fitting of, of uh, Martin Lloyd Jones. He goes, Shame on us for ever grumbling or complaining. Shame on us for ever saying that the lot of the Christian is hard. Shame on us for ever objecting to the demands of the glorious gospel. Shame on us for ever half heartedly worshiping, praising, and loving his honor and his glory. You and I, and I are destined for that vision, this glorious one. We will see him as he is face to face. John says it. Indeed, we are his children. What joy, what comfort. You don't have to be concerned. What will happen when the Lord returns? You'll have confidence. Rest in that. <laughs> you won't shy away because you're his and finally, implication, an awareness of our status should have us long to walk in holiness. 
Doctrine is always accompanied by moral implications. Jesus even said it, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Notice how James ends this section in verse three. Everyone who purifies himself, just as Jesus is pure, will see him. Verse two, going backwards. Well, the implication, of course, the, the question that lingers is how do we know we're a child of God? It sounds great. <clears throat> how can I ensure that? Well, let me first state, is there a point in life where you've confessed your sin to the Lord and have placed your faith in Christ? A, a recognition that what he has accomplished on the cross, nothing I have done is what saves. If not, that's where the adoption begins. If there's not been that, then the rest of this is a moot point. If you've made that profession and you're still questioning, then let me ask you, is there a deep awareness of sin? Are you troubled when you do that which you should not do? Is, do, you, do you realize that there is that sinful nature? Is there an alienation of the world? In other words, is there persecution of some form? Because the text tells us in verse 1, the world doesn't know us. What John says, for this reason the world does not know us because it didn't know him. So that's a good sign if you belong to the Lord. Paul talks about this in Romans 8. If you're persecuted, it's a sign you belong to God. And I would argue, can others witness Christ work in you? Can they see this? Those are some questions to ask yourself. But John's going to elaborate on this. <clears throat> because he's, he's talked about, yes, this is a child of God. This is what we have to look forward to. Here are the blessings that come because we have this title. But notice what he says in verse 4. Everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness. Indeed, sin is lawlessness or rebellion and you know that Jesus was revealed to take away sins and in him there is no sin everyone who resides in him does not sin we'll get to that text in a minute everyone who sins has neither seen him nor known him little children let no one deceive you the one who practices righteousness is righteous just as jesus is righteous the one who practices sin is of the devil because the devil has been sinning from the beginning for this purpose the son of god is revealed to destroy the works of the devil everyone who's been fathered by god does not practice sin it's bad enough he said it once he says it twice all right because God's seed resides in him, and thus he's not able to sin because he's, not been, or because he's been fathered by God. By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are revealed. Everyone who does not practice righteousness, namely the one who does not love his fellow Christian, is not of God. You can just hear John. He's laid out verse 28 of chapter 2 to 3.3. 3. And he, he's just as if he knows <clears throat> excuse me, he's anticipating those who are going to say, well, yep, I've been born of God, and thus, you know, I can live as I want. And he's, he's coming at that, and he, he's going to address this. And he starts off, anyone who practices sin, there in verse 4, sin is missing the mark. And he even further clarifies it, he equates it with lawlessness, which is rebellion. In other words, sin is basically it's saying, my will is what I'm going to live by, not your will, O oh Father. 
It, it can even be doing things outwardly, going through the routine, putting money on the offering plate, doing X, Y, Z, but never having an inward change. Reminds me of a little Johnny in the back seat. <clears throat> Mommy says, Johnny, sit down. We're in the car. Make sure your seatbelt is on. She looks in the rearview mirror. They've gone down the street. Johnny, I told you to sit down. Put your seatbelt on. Johnny doesn't want to do it. She finally says, Johnny, if I have to pull this car over, you're in serious trouble. Sit down, put that seatbelt on. So Johnny puts the seatbelt on, and down the road they go. A little bit later, Johnny says, Mommy, I may be sitting, but I'm standing up on the inside. <laughs> That's still rebellion. Outwardly, it's done. Inwardly, it's not done. <laughs> and no one can relate to that scenario. The actions and the attitude display a rebellious heart. You know, in light of the extreme toxic waste that sin is, it's so insipid. John understands this as he's writing, and that's why he says, anyone who, who partakes of this, you're, you're not of the Lord. And he gives us two reasons why it's so insidious. And we see that there in verse 5. He says, you know that Jesus revealed to take away sin. I mean, the first point here is that Jesus came. God had to, he had to send his son? And what did that mean? First of all, the son had to take on flesh and dwell among us. But secondly, he had to take on our sin, the one who was sinless, which we'll get to in a minute, and his blood was shed for our sin, not his. Look at chapter two, verse two. John writes, and he himself, Christ, is the atoning sacrifice. Why? Because back in chapter one, verse seven, he's the one whose blood was shed for us. And so John says, sin is so awful, and we, we, it's so easy, isn't it, to trivialize it? <laughs> well, you know, I gossip today. <laughs> You know, I don't repeat gossip, listen up the first time. You know, oh, oh, we, we, we justify these things and John goes, no, 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 no. If you're a child of God and all the glory that comes with that, you should not be practicing sin. He says everyone who does, again, is rebellious. It is so insipid because one, Christ had to come to deal with sin. In other words, by the way, there was no way we could deal with it. There's nothing that we could have devised. The UN couldn't have put it together. I don't care what leader, political leader, no one could have resolved it. And secondly, he says, he knows the text, and in him there is no sin. He was perfect. And it took his willingness to die on a cross so that we might be atoned. Hebrews 4.15, he was tempted in all areas as we, but without sin. He was born with no sin. He had no sin nature. And so how awful it is that he became sin. That's the whole point of what I think John's trying to convey here. Is you don't practice this because of what Christ is. And what Christ has had to do for us. Thus he says in verse 6, everyone who resides in Christ abides, a child, in the fellowship, in the light. Use whatever metaphor you want. He says, here in the text, does not sin. You go, oh, whoa, whoa, 
Hoffinitz, wait a minute. We've already looked at 1 John 1, 8 through 10. And he says, if we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive. John's got a problem here. You can't speak out of both sides of your mouth. How do you reconcile this? Well, that's what scholars are there for, right? To quibble. So I'm gonna give you a few views on this text because it is an extremely important one. And I, I think theologically, not only for 1 John, but for our lives here. What is John trying to say? Certainly, he's not talking about perfection. There are those who take this that we can be 100% sanctified the sight of eternity. No, that doesn't fit with 1 John 1, 8 and through 10, or 1 John 5, 16. That does not work. So what is John talking about? Here are several views. You will be tested over these before the hour is ended. First, there are those who argue it's super-Christians. In other words, there is this, a caste system, and these over here can be without sin. Well, the problem with that is he clearly, John is presenting, that all Christians are not to be practicing sin. And so to me, that just doesn't fit. <clears throat> and never does he indicate that Christians are perfect, as noted again, as we stated in 1 John 1 eight through 10. There are some scholars who argue that the, the definition of sin here is talking about categories of sin. These are the sins that are willfully committed versus the ones you really didn't know you shouldn't have had so much baklava the night before, right? Whatever the case. <clears throat> and again, I have a problem with that is how do you distinguish what sins are habitual or I should say willful, deliberate? And the context seems to indicate all sin the believer is not to commit. Well, a common view, which is in the, the NIV takes this rendering, and so does the ESV, is that it's habitual. And the argument is that the present tense of the verb is that we should not go on sinning, that it's a customary thing, it's, it, it's a continual sin, or practicing something that becomes a habit. And that's a common view. I have several problems, though, with that view. So let me walk through them with you. First of all, the present tense use, I think we need to be very careful because that's not the norm in much of the New Testament. And if we take a continual view here, we'd have to do that in 1 John 5 with committing sin, and that doesn't work. So it's inconsistent. But it's worse yet. Grammatically speaking, and I could go into some detail here, but all that to say is that a generic utterance would indicate it's a once-for-all, not a habitual idea. And I would argue theologically. John states that believers do not sin because God's seed remains in them. I don't see an idea of habitual, but also the New Testament teaches besetting sins, those sins that keep rearing their ugly heads. Hebrews 12 says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. So, I mean, most believers I know that are struggling, it's, it's usually a particular area in life that just keeps rearing its head, whether it's the tongue, whether it's the eyes. You know, there's this issue they keep dealing with. And I would also argue from a pastoral perspective, this interpretation isn't very comforting. Because often then I have people questioning, well, well, I'm really saved because I keep licking my wounds here. I don't think the habitual idea is a good one. 
There are two more views, and I take a, a hybrid of them. I combine them, so just bear with me. There are some who argue, and I think they're on the right track, that this is an ideal state. If you've noticed anything with John, he loves everything black and white. You're either the child of the Lord or you're a child of the devil. Either you love your brother or you hate your brother. It, there, there's no gray area for John. And so this idea is, this is how a Christian should be. Sin should be foreign to their life. Like oil and water, they don't mix. And if, it, if a believer does sin, then they need to repent. That fits, I think, very well with John, and more so in the latter view here, the last one, is that we're dealing with a projected eschatological reality. Now, just bear with me. That was a 50-cent phrase. But this entire section is talking about what we will be when Christ returns. Remember chapter 3, verse 2, right? We will be like him because we'll see him just as he is. Dan Wallace, in his Greek grammar beyond the basics, writes, John provides a proleptic view of sanctification. That is, he gives us a hyperbole picture of believers versus unbelievers, implying that even though believers are not yet perfect, they're moving in the direction while unbelievers are moving away from truth. Thus, the author states in absolute manner truths that are not yet true because he's speaking within the context of the hope that we have in the end. I think there's a combo here going. In other words, I mean, think about other texts of Scripture. Uh, Philippians 3, the Holy Spirit is working in us, ridding us of sin so that we can be blameless. For John, for the believer, as a child of God, sin should be foreign. It should not be on our radar. And ultimately, that is a preparation for a time when we will have no more sin in the presence of the Lord. And I, I think this is what John is highlighting. Again, 3-2, we will be like him. And later in verse 5, notice what he says in verse 5. When Jesus revealed to take the sins, there is no sin in him. We are to be like him. We will be perfect in the eschaton. Thank the Lord, right? <laughs> There's a day coming when there'll be no more sin. But in the process, in the spiritual life, sin should be foreign to the believer. It should be such an anomaly, such a horrific thing that immediately it's dealt with. Now, let me give you some implications, and just let me summarize this, because we've just dealt with a lot of theology, and this is a very difficult passage. One thing, first, let's, let's see what we can recognize. An unsaved person, I think we all can agree, is in bondage to sin. I don't care which view you take, there's an understanding. The unsaved person, one who's not a child of God, is bound to sin and its control. In other words, they cannot help but sin. There, there's no other option. They're enslaved to it. That's what Christ came to deal with. And if you place your faith in Christ, that bondage is removed. And so thus, the second point is a believer is no longer in the bondage of sin. So I would argue sin shouldn't be found in the life of the child of God. Sadly, we know from 1 John, a believer will sin. Often it's a sin that you know, has reared its ugly head. But as John has told us, God is faithful to forgive so what are we to do? We're to train ourselves in godliness, 1 Timothy 4. We are to be preparing 
for that day when we have a perfect body, when we are with the Lord. That is our desire because there's a day coming again when sin will no longer be an issue. John is anticipating, I think, what some of the opponents are saying. And that is, oh, John, we don't, we don't need to get hung up over sin. You've claimed Christ, you're his, enjoy. And that's what John, then he comes to verses 7 and 8, and he says, little children, let no one deceive you. The one who practices righteousness, just as Christ is righteous, but the one who practices sin is of the devil. So either you're with Jesus, walking in righteousness, or you're with Satan in dealing in sin. And so to the opponents, John is saying, no, there is no middle ground. Either sin, or if you don't sin, it's reflecting the character of whom you're aligning with. And again, what is the traits of the, of the Father? As we looked at earlier, well, the traits of the of our Heavenly Father is that He is holy. He is righteous. He says, the one who practices sin is the devil, and I love this. And doubles, he says, been doing that from the beginning. For the purpose of the Son of God, don't miss this in verse 8, was revealed to destroy the works of Satan. What are devil's works? Temptation, destruction, enslaving men and women. Christ came to do battle. Oh yeah, Satan certainly still at work today. There's a day coming when the Lord will ultimately cast Satan into the lake of fire. But the Lord has rendered Satan incapable of claiming control for those of us who've turned our lives over to him. Evil and sin, again, will be cast along with Satan into the lake of fire. It's interesting as you look at these verses, I thought it might be helpful to see a diagram thinking through this. Unsaved, he's described, practices sin, is lawless, does not see or know God, is a child of the devil. And as John is laying this out, he says, look what Christ has accomplished. The one whose perfects dealt with sin. <laughs> he's allowed us to know God, and he's allowed us to become a child. So through Christ, the one who claims to be a follower of Jesus, does not practice sin, is righteous, not lawless resides with God and is a child of God. And so you see this contrast that, that John is trying to, to show here in this passage. The beauty of being claimed we are his <laughs> and all that it entails. And so he gets to verse nine and he repeats what he said in verse 29 of chapter two. Everyone who's been fathered by God does not practice sin because watch this God's seed re remains in him it's metaphorical but it's very clear the divine attributes the principles which abides in the believer and John is using this metaphor of seed because God has planted new life in the heart of the believer they're a new creation born of God sharing in his character and in this opposition to sin means ultimately that it would be unthinkable that a believer would even sin. <laughs> I was thinking through this. It's, a, it's like a teenager who's hanging out with her friends and they say, hey, let's go out. We're going to party tonight. There'll be a little bit of drugs and alcohol. It's going to be great. She goes, no, I, I can't do that. Uh, that. 
that, that would not be cool. Um, my parents wouldn't approve. And one of the friends goes, why? You think your, your parents are going to hurt you? She goes, no, I'm afraid I'm going to hurt my parents. That's what it means to be a follower of Christ, to be a child of God. It's saying, no, this sin cannot dwell within me. It cannot be there. I've been fathered by him, as he repeats a second time in verse 9, because he's been fathered by God. And then in verse 10, by this, the children of God and the children of the devil are revealed. That's the bottom line. Are you practicing righteousness? Again, it's not to determine whether you're saved or not. If you're saved, though, this is what you will do. It's expected. Why? Because we don't have a moment to spare. We are in the last hour. Christ is going to return, and you have two options. One is you could stand there in confidence and say, hello, welcome, I'm a child of God. Or you can cower and say, oh, no, I belong to Satan and his ways. He gives at the latter part of 10 an interesting little litmus test about righteousness, and that is, how do you love one another? And next week, we'll dive into that because he's going to expound on that. Father, in closing out the sermon today, I just want to ask you a few questions. You don't have to answer out loud. But a few things to think about. This text is theologically deep. There is no doubt about it. It's one that scholars have debated, and I've given you those, and there's even fine English translations we've talked about that take it as habitual here that a believer doesn't keep on sinning. The bottom line, though, is it's clear, isn't it, that sin shouldn't be on the lips of a believer. So let me ask you, are you pretending to be a Christian, or has there been a transformation of the heart? Are you a new creation? Or are you going through the... The, the procedures, checking off the boxes, but like little Johnny, you're sitting in the back saying, I'm still standing in the heart. <laughs> Do I cultivate this child of God's status through prayer, reading the word, and fellowship with the saints? Has any unconfessed sin defiled my inner person? For those of us who know Christ, are we taking sin seriously? Are we willing to confess and forsake? I'm always surprised when I meet individuals <laughs> who want counseling, and really the bottom line is they just won't let go of sin. They're holding on really tight. Are we willing to abandon? If, if we were to form a committee and we could evaluate not only what you do during the week, but what you think, what you look at on the internet, etc., would we know you are fathered by the Lord? <laughs> Does my old nature seek to control my thoughts and desires? And then last question, what temptations do I play with rather than run away with, or, <laughs> or way to in my life? Those are just some thoughts as we, it's a heavy text, there's no doubt. It calls for us to forsake sin as one who claims that we are a child of God, but the glory that comes from being fathered by the Lord. As John said in verse one, 
What sort of love the Father has given to us that we should be called God's children? And we are. That's a glorious truth. Father, we come to you. It's, it's a difficult text. And I think, honestly, for me, the difficulty is not the theology of it or the grammar. It's the expectation that we are to live holy lives submitting to you. It's easy to entertain, fuel the fire of a temptation or a thought, justify our anger, blast the horn when we're driving the car. Lord, and forget, no, 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 no. These things should not be. And in that process, Lord, we just thank you. All of the blessings and benefits that come because we are yours. <laughs> we didn't deserve it. We can't even get our minds around it. But we thank you. And we are so grateful that we can call you Abba. In the power of the Spirit. And in the name of your son, Jesus, we pray. Amen.